All right, so we're kicking off this fall with a, a five-week series on work. Because work is something we all relate to, right? <laughs> For some of us, work has to do with school, schoolwork, homework. Others of us work at home, housework, uh, working from home. Many of others of us go to work. We have a job, a career, a trade. And so we spend a lot of our time each week working, right? Probably more time and energy than we spend doing anything else. And so it's tragic that so many Christians think about work as a necessary evil, as something to be endured, something to be got through to earn money so that after work, we can serve God, we can rest, we can live our lives. But that's not the way God views work. No, our work matters to God. In fact, Paul Stevens, a Christian professor who's devoted much of his life to helping people develop a Christian view of work, he says, and I think he's right, that our work is probably the number one context in which we work out our Christian life, our spiritual growth, our spiritual formation. Work is where we learn, as as Darnell prayed so insightfully this morning, it's where we learn to love and to be patient with difficult people. Work is where we learn to exercise courage and to be bold in standing up for what's right and just. Work is where we learn to trust God, to to exercise our faith. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to look at different ways that our work matters to God. We'll look at one way each Sunday. And chances are some Sundays may relate more to your situation than others. That's okay. It's the way life is. But each week, uh, we're going to turn to the book of Daniel to help us. And today, uh, we'll begin with Daniel chapter 1. Have you ever worked somewhere or studied somewhere where you felt different and alone? Like the other people there weren't like you. They, They didn't share your values, maybe. Maybe they were hostile to you or to what you believed. Well, this is how Daniel felt. As a young man of probably 14 or 15, we suspect, he was taken away from his home, his parents, his school, his future in Judah, and he was taken to a far-off, strange culture in another nation. What was happening at this time on an international and geopolitical level was that Babylon was building an empire. And as part of flexing their muscles in the region where Daniel lived, the Babylonians picked some of the best and the brightest young people from among Judah's elite, and they carted them off to Babylon to be re-educated in the ways of the Babylonians. And there were a few reasons they did this. One was that the Babylonian Empire was expanding, and so they needed more capable administrators and officials to manage and govern it. But another was that this gave Babylon great leverage over subdued peoples like Judah. Because, I mean, if you're the nobility, you're the royalty of Judah, and Babylon has your own children, you're going to think twice about causing trouble and getting rebellious toward the empire. Also, if the Babylonians can re-educate and can influence the top minds of the next generation, this will help them to win over that generation. Sounds familiar to maybe what's going on today, huh? Well, this is what was happening to Daniel and to a number of the other elite young people. And so they're taken to Babylon and they're given a top-notch education 
which is also an indoctrination. Daniel 1.4 says that they were taught the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Now, we actually know from ancient records and writings what a top-notch Babylonian education like this entailed. It involved learning the Akkadian and Aramaic languages. It involved learning the religion and the mythology of the Babylonians. And among other things, it, learned, it involved learning astrology and divination. You see, there was no separation of church and state in those days. So the Babylonians, like most all ancient peoples, were thoroughly religious and superstitious, even in their public sphere and in their government. They believed that the gods and the spirits were behind every famine that came, every battle they faced, every illness they experienced. And so if you could figure out what the gods were up to in the Babylonian mindset, you could try to influence the outcome of important events. This was called divination. And it involved studying the movements of the stars, that was the astrology part, uh, observing other phenomena in nature, interpreting dreams, and even examining the livers of sacrificial animals. And, and through all of these, the diviners and the astrologers, they would try to discern the future and, and to read the will of the gods and the fates and the spirits. And then, if they could figure out that trouble was coming and what the spiritual roots of that trouble were, they would use various magical arts and spells and incantations and sacrifices to try to protect their empire, to defend it from calamity and to ensure its success. And so this is part of what Daniel and his, the other young Judeans are being trained to do. And in the book of Daniel, we're going to see that Daniel, because the true God is with him, turns out to be better at this than anyone else. Better at predicting the future. Better at interpreting puzzling dreams and knowing what should be done in response to protect the Babylonian Empire and to allow it to prosper. And so in the world, in the culture of that time, this is what it means to be a wise man. Having both intellectual and spiritual wisdom. In fact, do you know that the first six chapters of Daniel are considered, even though they're in the prophets, they're considered to be wisdom literature. In the Hebrew Bible, I believe they're in the writings. Um, but the, the story of, of Daniel and his friends, this is not wisdom literature in the way the Babylonians would expect. Because it's meant to teach the Jews and us Wisdom about how to live and work, uh, live well, and to live faithfully in a hostile environment in a pagan empire like Babylon. And so, the challenge that this first chapter of Daniel deals with is how do you remain faithful to God in an environment which is utterly hostile to your faith? And that's relevant for today, too, right? So let, let's think a little bit about all the ways that Daniel and his friends are, are being pressured to enculturate, to take on pagan Babylonian ways. Obviously, first, their education, as we've already seen. They're basically at Hogwarts here, okay? They're, they're, they're being steeped and immersed in the religion, the literature, the thought forms and ideas, which to them are offensive, are evil, are pagan. 
Then second, there's also the new names that we, we learn that they've been given. They can't even keep their names. Their, their Hebrew names, as, as was common then, all had meanings related to the Lord. But, but now they've been given new Babylonian names. Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And each of these new names refers in one way or another to the gods of Babylon, if you break down the etymology of the names. And, and so this attacks their very identity. I mean, imagine if your name meant something like, let's say, God is my help. And you're taken away to be re-educated and you're given a new name like, say, Servant of the Dark Lord or something like that. And, and every day, that's what you hear. That's what you're expected to answer to. Servant of the Dark Lord. Servant of the Dark Lord. It might affect your identity, right? <laughs> and, and then third, there's the food that they're given to eat. They're, they're fed from the king's table, which doesn't mean they literally dined with the king, but rather that they were dependent on the king for their survival. The Babylonian king had control of whether they ate or went hungry. And of course, Jews are commanded in, in the, the scriptures to be utterly concerned about what they eat and not to eat certain things. And so food is a big deal, and it's highly problematic for them. Because how do they know if the food they're being served is kosher, or is against God's law, or is going to defile them and make them unclean before God? Well, what are Daniel and his friends to do in responding to all this pressure to acculturate, to leave their religion, their faith behind, and to take on the ways of the Babylonians? Well, we see three ways that they respond to this situation. And remember, this is wisdom literature. So their example is meant to teach us about how to live and to function in an environment which is hostile to our faith, given that we believe that God is sovereign. Because if you had to sum up the whole message of the book of Daniel, it's basically that despite appearances, God is in control. And so if that's the case, how do we live in, in a hostile environment? How do we function? This is meant to teach us, this book and this story this morning, how to go about our work, our jobs, in a way which honors the God that we serve and the God who, despite all appearances, is in control. And so the first lesson that Daniel 1 teaches us is to do our very best work, even if our employer is Babylon. There's no worse witness to God than a lazy or careless worker or student. Have you ever worked or studied with someone like this who's always talking loudly about their religion, but they never pull their weight at work or on a group project? They do shoddy work. Nobody can count on them. They're always complaining. And nobody wants to hear about what someone like that believes, right? <laughs> but Daniel and his friends are just the opposite. They've been torn from their families. They've been indoctrinated. They're being indoctrinated in all of this Babylonian stuff that they don't believe and which they find offensive. And they could feel sorry for themselves. They could have an attitude. They could do the absolute minimum. But they don't. No, they, they, they do their very best. In fact, they graduate with highest honor, summa cum laude. Daniel and his friends turn out to be smarter and better educated in the ways of Babylon than any of the Babylonians are. They do their very best work. This is part of their witness, and this gets them the notice of their supervisors. It earns them the respect of their superiors. 
It gets them into positions where they later have influence. And so, when they do need to take a stand, they're respected and liked by those over them. And so this leads to the second lesson that we can learn about work from the example of Daniel and his friends. They choose their battles. They get your name changed, you know, to one referencing a Babylonian god. They don't protest, as far as we know. Have to learn about sorcery and mythology and divination and astrology. They master it all better than anyone else. Why? I guess they're secure in who they are and what they believe. And so they can learn stuff they don't agree with without being influenced by it. But then when it comes to the food that they're supposed to eat, this is where Daniel takes a stand. Now, why take a stand here? Why fight this battle? Well, we're actually not sure. We, we do know that it's not for health reasons. Sorry for you fans of the Daniel plan. It's great to eat healthy, but don't look to Daniel to justify it. Daniel isn't doing this for health reasons. He's doing it for religious reasons, not to defile himself, the text says. And do you know what the results of this diet were in terms of health outcomes? The newer translations like the NIV say that after this 10-day diet, Daniel and his friends look better nourished than all the others. But do you know what the Hebrew literally says? It says they looked fatter than all the others. Fatter. In that culture, being fat was considered attractive. But I digress. <laughs> Why will the king's meat and wine defile Daniel and his friends? Maybe it has to do with the food not being kosher and breaking Old Testament food laws. Maybe it has to do with the food being offered to idols uh, before being served, as was commonly done at that time. We're really not sure what Daniel's concern was. But the point is this. Daniel and his friends chose their battles. They didn't fight every battle. They weren't all wrapped up in being the voice of truth or the moral conscience at their workplace or their school every time something wasn't exactly in keeping with, with God's view of the truth as they understood it. No, they were in a pagan environment. They expected people to behave as pagans. And in many ways, they went along with the program. Now, of course, they had to. They were captives after all. But not only did they go along with it, they excelled at it. But on this one matter of food, where it really counted to them, they chose to take a stand. And we need the wisdom to know where, uh, in the places we work, we need to stand our ground. And when, where we need to go with the program. But we can't fight every battle. We aren't called to, to point out and pass judgment on every little thing that's wrong. Rather, we need the wisdom to know where to take our stands. To, to stand against the culture, to, to model, to witness to a countercultural way to live. But it's not just when to take a stand, it's also how to take a stand, right? And so let's look third, this third lesson, at, at what wisdom we can learn about how Daniel takes this stand. We uh, see that he resolves not to eat this food. He's not wishy-washy about it. He's not half-hearted. No, he resolves. He's got conviction. And, and he's going to need this conviction to have courage to follow through. So then how does he take this stand? Well, he doesn't stand on his soapbox and defy his superiors or rail against the paganism in Babylon. He doesn't orchestrate a big showdown. No, he's strategic and he's respectful. 
And he goes to someone whom he knows already likes and respects him. The chief official, verse 9, says, Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. This is the person that Daniel picks. Someone sympathetic to him. And Daniel says to this official respectfully, I'd like your permission not to eat this food. And guess how the official responds? He says, no. (laughs) He says, Daniel, think of my situation. If you don't eat the king's food and your health suffers, the king will have my head. And I can't risk that. So no, you need to eat the food. Daniel's plan has failed. He took a stand and it didn't work. But Daniel doesn't give up. After all, he's resolved for whatever reason that he's not going to eat this food. He's got conviction. So what does he do next? He, He still doesn't make a big deal about it. He doesn't file a grievance with the HR department. No, he just respectfully tries again. But he uses what he learned the first time to try a different approach the second time. The first approach didn't work. So the second time, he changes his request in three ways. He makes it smaller, only 10 days. He makes it a win-win for both him and the person he asks. And he goes this time to someone directly above him, a different person, to the guard in charge of him. And he says, hey, I respect your situation. I understand that your job is to make sure that I'm well-fed and healthy. But here's my situation. My friends and I don't want to eat this food. It's against our religion. So how about this? Let's just do a 10-day experiment. Just 10 days. And so you could see here, he, he not only brings the problem to his supervisor, but he also comes up with a proposed solution. He says, let's... Let's eat no wine. Let us eat no wine, no meat from the king's table, just vegetables and water for 10 days. And by the way, this Hebrew word vegetables here includes seeds and grains and bread and stuff like that. And, and so then after 10 days, Daniel says, treat us based on what you see, based on how healthy we are. So this is a win-win, right? Daniel asks for what he wants, but he does it in a way so that the guard gets what he needs too. This is wisdom. This is wisdom. Not to make a big spectacle for God every time and act holier than everyone else, but just to say, here's what's important to my faith, and I understand your interests and your positions, and how about we work something out? Let me suggest a win-win situation. And this is a step of faith for Daniel, right? Because if the experiment doesn't work after 10 days, he's going to have to eat the food that he's resolved not to eat. Daniel's got to trust God to uphold his faithfulness. And God does. And our work should give us plenty of opportunities, too, to exercise our faith muscles, to depend on God to come through. So in summary, in Daniel 1, we we see a first reason that our work matters to God. And that's because in our work, we are to be a countercultural witness to those around us. That's what Daniel and his friends are. To, to show them what it looks like to follow God, to honor God, to trust God, to, to show the difference our faith makes as, as we live in a countercultural way of life. How does Daniel do this? First, by doing excellent work, by excelling by being a diligent model worker, by using the gifts God's given him. Second, by having strong moral and ethical standards, 
But not fighting every battle, rather choosing the battles which are most important and relying on God for the wisdom to know which ones to choose. And then third, by, by going about it wisely, tactfully, respectfully, looking for win-win solutions. And by doing this, Daniel and his friends are good witnesses to, to the official, to the guard, and then when the king examines them at graduation and finds them better nourished and wiser and better educated than everyone else, they begin, begin to be witnesses to the king. May we be like this too. So others at work, at school, at home can look at us and say, wow, God's people work hard. They do excellent work. They, they care about the, the company, the organization. They're well informed. Wow, God's people are smart. They know their stuff. Wow, God's people have conviction. They live differently and the way they live turns out to be the better way. Because of this, this witness by, by Daniel and his friends, as the story continues, we'll see how God is able to use them as a result. 